seat. What a privilege it is to gather together uh, as God's people in his presence. And what was read to us a little bit earlier, we're going to try and do some of it. We can't tackle all of it. But there were a couple of big requests that Moses made of God. And uh, let's just, let me just pray that for us as we dig into his word. Let's pray. Glorious God, what a privilege is ours that you would draw near to us, that in Christ you would call us friends. Please teach us your ways and show us your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you could have a prosperous life, Without God, would you take it? You know, nice house, a satisfying job that pays the bills, that provides for the family. You know, go on nice holidays, have an early retirement, have nice hobbies. But without God, would you go for it? If we could do church meetings without Jesus, would you be satisfied with that? So each week we manage to meet up, sing, hear inspiring stories, have midweek small groups with a loving community, had a very positive youth work that keeps our kids safe from the, from the, the terrible bad city out there and, and do it all without Jesus Christ. Would that be enough for you? Would that be enough for us? It is entirely possible for churches, for religious people, to go for a long time without noticing that God is not actually present amongst them. Jesus wrote some letters to churches uh, through the Apostle John. You'll find them in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And he writes to one particular church, the church of Laodicea, and they evidently thought they were a great church. They always met budget. They had lots of church meetings. Uh, they, they said to themselves, you know, we're rich. We've acquired wealth. We do not need a thing, they said. But Jesus' assessment of them was quite different. You do not realize, he says, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and naked. These Christians, this church was delusional. They met as a church, but Jesus was not present. In fact, they were so lukewarm they'd not even noticed that he was outside the church door knocking on the door saying, look, I'm willing to come in and, and have fellowship with you if you'll just let me in. But what about us, Charlotte Chapel? What do we want? How much are we seeking the Lord Jesus Christ to be the number one priority in our lives? How much are we hungering for God as his people that was the sobering question that Israel was waking up to in Exodus chapter 33 so please open your Bibles back up to Exodus chapter 33 page 92 last week we saw how Moses while he was at the top of Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments the people were busy breaking them all in the camp down below as they worshipped around a golden calf. 
we considered some of the consequences last week. But have a look at chapter 33 and verse 3 to see the final terrible repercussion of their sinful rebellion. Look at chapter 33, verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. So God's going to deliver on all those promises to Abraham. He's going to give them the promised land, but he's not going to go with them. And the reason was simple. God's presence was dangerous to them. Now, I, I had a great PowerPoint, but for some reason it doesn't come through. So providentially, the Lord doesn't want a PowerPoint. So I've got three points this morning. My first point is this. The dangerous presence of God. That's what you see in the first six verses of chapter 33. The dangerous presence of God. I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way, it says in verse 3. Their sinfulness was like gunpowder to the fire of God's holiness. A combination that would be both explosive and deadly. They're a stiff-necked people. And the picture is kind of a farm animal, kind of a donkey or an ox. And uh, the, the farmer comes to put a yoke on it, so they'll do a day's work. And they kind of st stuck their neck in such a way that they can't get the yoke on. They refuse to work for their owner they refuse to work because they're stiff-necked they don't want to submit well that's what the people are like God says they're just a stiff-necked people awkward just don't want to go with God look at verse 5 for the Lord said to Moses tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people if I were to go with you even for a moment I might destroy you and so God says, go, go up without me. It'd be safer for you if you do that. Because God's presence is, is dangerous. It's dangerous for a sinful people to be around a holy God. And I wonder this morning, have we begun to comprehend the holiness of God? How totally opposed and provoked he is by our sin. Look what it says. Not for a single moment can he be amongst these stiff-necked people. See, we dare not approach God just as we are. God's presence is dangerous. It's even dangerous for Moses. God had to tell Moses that he would not survive seeing God's glory directly. As Moses requests to see the glory of God, so, well, God says, you, you cannot see my face. You cannot see the full glory. You couldn't bear it. No one may see me and live, God says in verse 20. Such is the utter holiness of God. And our danger, I think, as people who live in the good of the gospel is that we treat drawing near to God as if it was a small and insignificant thing. But clearly it's not, is it? Aaron had underestimated what it meant to live with a holy God. He thought he could worship God on his terms, that he would create this golden calf and say, here's, here's the Lord, people, worship, worship here. But that golden calf moment was a terrible incident of, of rebellion and sin. And God says, look, to Moses, step aside and I'll just wipe them out. It, it, just, it severely threatened their relationship with God. And so you see, if we are sinfully, uh, unrepentantly pursuing our sin 
then we should not be surprised if God feels very distant to us. We shouldn't be surprised at all. If our Christian lives feel that they lack joy and vitality while all the while we're pursuing our sin, well, there's no shock to that, is it? God's presence will not go with us when we push him aside, when we lock him out of our lives through disobedience. But what is encouraging in chapter 33 is that the people were beginning to wake up to this serious uh, possibility, the seriousness of their sin. Look at, chapter, uh, look at verse 4. When the people heard those distressing words, that's a good sign they were distressed by the thought that God wouldn't go with them. When they heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. For that's what God had told them uh, to do as a mark of their repentance. Instead of taking off their jewelry to make a golden calf, they were taking off their jewelry as an act of spiritual mourning over their rebellion before the Lord. Very encouraging. Because as Jesus taught his disciples, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So there's hopefulness in this response, isn't it? The other place for hope here is the unrelenting mediation of Moses. See, while the people are estranged from God, Moses sets up a tent of meeting outside the camp. There he continued to commune with God. Face to face, it says. Now, the text says you, don't, you can't see the face of God. But what it means is, is close and personal. God met with Moses up close and personal, as it goes on to say, as a man speaks with a friend. This is how close this personal relationship is between uh, the Lord and Moses. He is a friend of God. What an amazing thing. They talk directly, person to person. And Moses used that time to never give up pleading and interceding for the people before God. For although Moses knew that God's presence was dangerous, secondly, he knew that God's presence was indispensable. The indispensable presence of God. And we see that verses 7 to 17. So God had promised the land, although he'd not go with them. He would deliver on that. But it's not enough for Moses, is it? Look at verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How amazing. Moses is not content with just the gifts. He wants the giver. Uh, he knows that the gifts mean nothing without God himself. God's presence is just indispensable to Moses. And that hunger, I think, is a challenge, isn't it? Is God the greatest treasure that we are pursuing in our lives? Has that been the greatest treasure we've pursued in this past week? Is the presence of Jesus what we desire more than anything else? Because we know he is the pearl of great price. Now look at this amazing interaction between Moses and God. Because I think there are some important lessons we can learn here about prayer. He starts in verse 12 by reminding God of his own words. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
You've said, I know you by name, and you've found favor with me. Now notice with me that Moses bases his requests on God's revealed words. Now that's a great place to start with our prayers. Do you want to know how to pray to God? Dig into his words, see what he's promised, and start repeating them back to God. God, you have promised this. You've said this. And on that basis, make those requests. And he makes two requests. Firstly, verse 13, teach me your ways. Verse 13, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Uh, when you get married, there's a lot to learn about your spouse. Um, 31 years on, I'm still learning things. And uh, a good relationship is about learning each other's ways and habits, likes and dislikes, because you want to get to know them personally and deeply. And only when you, when you know these things are you going to be able to please the other person, uh, uh, to find favor with them, which is always a good thing if you're married to them, isn't it? Uh, you, you want it to be a, a, a happy house where you're getting on really well. And so you say uh, you want to get to know them really well. And I think that's the essence of this first request. Moses wants to so know God that he can please God. He wants to enjoy God's wonderful presence. He doesn't want for a moment to be without God's presence. So he says, teach me your ways. I want to know you. King David made the same a wonderful prayer request in Psalm 25. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. So show me your ways. And at the end of verse 13, he also has the temerity to remind God of an important fact. Remember, this nation is your people. He keeps bringing it back to God. God keeps referring to them as your people. And Moses keeps saying, well, no, no, remember, God, they're, they're your people. The Lord's reply in verse 14 is very encouraging. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But you know what? This is still a bit ambiguous for Moses. In the original language... The word you is singular. So it's not plural. So does that mean only Moses? Is, is the Lord's presence only going to go with Moses? Uh, or is the Lord meaning Moses and the nation as one unit? Well, Moses is taking no chances. So verse 15, he goes on. Then the Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses reckoned the promised land without God would be of no benefit. Zilch. We'd rather not go if you don't come with us. Verse 16. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? God's presence is indispensable because without him, the people are indistinguishable from the rest of the nations. The thing that makes God's people different is the presence of God that shapes his people. How could God's name and character be known in the world if his people are no different to the world? 
When God's presence is little sought or required of God's people, it's not much surprise when the church just ends up mirroring the standards of the world and looking just like the world. When Christians look exactly like anyone else, whatever faith or religion or creed, it's a sure sign that they're missing the presence of God. So underlying Moses' request is this burning desire that Moses has that God's name and his character would be known in all the earth. And he says, look, how's that going to happen unless we're a distinct people? And we're only going to be a distinct people if you go with us. Now look at this wonderful verse of encouragement to the Christian in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Let me tell you why this is such an encouragement. It's not because we are like Moses. Moses has this incredibly unique relationship with God. He appears to be the only one faithful Israelite left at this point. He's a unique mediator between people and God. If we are anywhere in the story, guess where we are? We're with the sort of stiff-necked people, aren't we? The great encouragement and hope for us as Christians is that we have a greater mediator than Moses. Isn't that a beautiful thing? In 1 Timothy, we're going to, in chapter 2, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. How can stiff-necked rebels ever know the presence of this holy God without getting fried only because of Jesus Christ, our great mediator? The one whose death on the cross provided atonement for our sins, covered over our sins. The cross is the place where stiff-necked rebel sinners can find forgiveness. He's the, his perfect life is the substitute for all our offenses. And he is the one who intercedes before God on our behalf. Even as he was being crucified, he looks on those who are crucifying them and he intercedes for them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Hebrews chapter 7 encourages us, Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You see, the New Testament teaches us that we should pray to God in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a reminder that our access to God is only through Jesus uh, and, and, and his perfect substitution, his perfect intercession for us. That we dare not come in any other way to the Holy God. And there's great encouragement when we come in Christ. Because God answers our prayers, not because of our merit or our good standing, but because of the merit and the favor of our mediator, Jesus Christ. The very same Lord Jesus who said to his disciples in John 15, greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he says to his disciples, You are my friends. What a stunning thing that is. Who's your best friend? If it's not Jesus, I pity you. It could be. 
Come and talk to me or come talk to someone in this church. We'd love to let you know how Jesus can be your best friend. You know, this amazing thing that, that God met with Moses face to face as one meets a friend. And God came in human flesh in Jesus. And he says to his disciples, you are my friends. If you do what I command, he says. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. What a stunning thing that Jesus would call us friend, that we could dare to call Jesus friend. And because of that, we like Moses can speak face to face with God as one speaks to a friend. And so Exodus 33 verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. How delighted the father is in his son, the Lord Jesus, and how eager he is to answer all the intercessory prayers of his son on behalf of his people. They're going to get the land and they're going to know God's presence going with them. The tabernacle is still on, which is a relief because we spent so many weeks on the tabernacle. It's still on. But even that is not enough for Moses. Look at this second and most audacious request in verse 18. Now show me your glory. <laughs> what a request. Moses longs to experience more of the glorious presence of God. So we've looked at the dangerous presence of God, the indispensable presence of God, and thirdly, the glorious presence of God. Glory is this kind of big word in the Bible. It's a hard word to define. It has this idea of splendor and radiance, but it actually has this idea of weightiness, the weightiness of divine being. And Moses says, please show me your greatness, your value, your worth. I don't want just to know how to live to please you, God. I want to know you. I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And from, look at the reply in uh, verse 33. Uh, no, the reply in verse 19, 33 verse 19, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Show me your glory, and God says, well, I'm going I'm to cause all my goodness. There's, there's a link between God's glory, and it's linked to his goodness, and God says to Moses, I'm going to reveal part of my glory by revealing my goodness to you and there's clearly some something going on here that's visual but it's more than pyrotechnics because Moses could not cope with seeing the fullness of of God's glory God says I'm going to stick you in the in the cleft of this rock I'm going to put a hand over you and when my glory passes by I'll remove my hand and you'll kind of see the after effects of my glory and actually Moses in, in a sense, hears the glory of God as much as sees the glory of God. It's a glory that's revealed through his ears. So look at chapter 34 and verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
Verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. Should we say these words together? Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord proclaimed together. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Let's just chew over those words a little bit, shall we? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Now that's music to our ears, isn't it? In the light of our sinfulness and our stiff neckedness, uh, he's a compassionate and gracious God. Do you know what God is like? He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's not, the, uh, he's not got the anger of a tired parent at the end of the day. He's just bawling at the kids. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it says. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. You don't have to squeeze love out of God like an empty toothpaste tube. He is abounding in it he never stops pouring out his covenant faithfulness to the people he's committed to forgiving iniquity it says and transgression and sin oh what wonderful words these are for those who know that they're guilty sinners this is the character of a god he forgives iniquity transgression and sin this is what we desperately need it's only on this basis that god can continue with people like us and yet he doesn't shove sin under the carpet, it says. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Part of the glory of God is that God is a just judge. The guilty will not go unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Sin has generational repercussions. But here's a big question, isn't it? How can God be a forgiving God and yet still hold the guilty accountable? Now that's a big thing to chew on. How can he be a forgiving God and still hold the sins of guilty people, hold them to account for it? Moses didn't have the answer. And it remains a tension until we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross you see the glory of God as the judge. The sins of the guilty are punished. He was punished in our place. And there at the cross we see the glory of God who's abounding in love and compassion and grace. For he himself stands in our place so that the wrath is not poured on us but on his son so that we can be completely forgiven. What a savior. Any who put their trust in Jesus may know full and complete forgiveness for their sins. Now Moses didn't know how God would do this. He trusted in God's revelation. He believed his word. He quickly bows down and worshiped God because this is an awesome God. With such a glorious God, they're going to see wonders. They're going to see awesome works, it says in verse 10. The Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you before all your peoples. I will do wonders never before done in the nation of the world. 
And of course, those wonders are seen supremely when his son came, aren't they? The one who made the blind to see, the lame to, to leap. He stilled storms. He raised the dead. Those who died were raised. And when he died on the third day, he rose again. And he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. This is the same awesome God who's able to do awesome deeds of salvation in the lives of people today. There's hope for every single person. Because this is a God who does awesome works. And so why do we mess about with worthless idols when we could worship a God who alone does awesome things in and through our lives? And when we walk closely with such a glorious God, you begin to reflect his glory. That's how the chapter ends, this extraordinary uh, scene of Moses coming down the mountain. He's been with God for 40 days and 40 nights. He's, he's bringing the Ten Commandments. The covenant is back on. And he doesn't know it, but his face is shining with the reflected glory of God. He only saw the after effects of God's glory, but still his face is, is beaming, uh, radiant. And it's our privilege as those who have the witness of the apostles who saw the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ, that as we read the accounts of the life of Jesus, as we look that God would fill us with his Holy Spirit, that we would move beyond just words to an encounter with the living God, and we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ, we too, as God's people, will begin to reflect the glory of of Jesus Christ as a community as we live around his word in our lives if we'll come to him day by day do you want God's presence in your life do you want the Lord Jesus Christ to be known in our church teach us your ways show us your glory is the request of the heart that wants this? Do you want this? It's over to us, isn't it? There's going to be a prayer meeting Wednesday night. We're going to gather again. A great opportunity to gather as the people of God and say to God in our coming, we want to know you. We want to depend upon you for our church. Sunday, uh, day by day, we have the opportunity to start the day by opening the Bible and moving from just a mechanical reading of the Bible to just saying, I want to know you. Teach me your ways. Show me your glory. Let's pray. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Oh, Father, we need more of you. Lord Jesus, we need more of you. Holy Spirit, we need more of you in our lives, in this church. We ask this through our wonderful mediator, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's stand and uh, finish with a, a song of worship to this holy God. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>